Genesis 41, 1 to 36. Pharaoh is humbled. Humbled by the two dreams he receives. Genesis 41, 1. Now it happened at the end of two full years that Pharaoh had a dream. And behold, he was standing by the Nile. And lo, from the Nile there came up seven cows, sleek and fat, and they grazed in the marsh grass. Then behold, seven other cows came up after them from the Nile, ugly and gaunt. And they stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly and gaunt cows ate up the seven sleek and fat cows. Then Pharaoh awoke, and he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain came up on a single stalk, plump and good. Then behold, seven ears thin and scorched by the east wind sprouted up after them, and the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump and full ears. Then Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. Now it came about in the morning that his spirit was troubled, so he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men, and Pharaoh told them his dreams. But there was no one who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer spoke to Pharaoh, saying, I would make mention today of my own offenses. Pharaoh was furious with his servants, and he put me in confinement in the house of the captain of the bodyguard, both me and the chief baker. And we had a dream on the same night, he and I. Each of us dreamed according to the interpretation of his own dream. Now, a Hebrew youth was with us there, a slave of the captain of the bodyguard, and we related them to him, and he interpreted our dreams for us. To each one he interpreted according to his own dream. And it came about that just as he interpreted for us, so it happened. He restored me in my office, but he hanged him. Then Pharaoh sent and called for Joseph, and they hurriedly brought him out of the dungeon. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, but no one can interpret it. And I have heard it said about you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph then answered Pharaoh, saying, It is not in me. May God give Pharaoh a favorable answer. So Pharaoh spoke to Joseph, In my dream, behold, I was standing on the bank of the Nile, and behold, seven cows, fat and sleek, came up out of the Nile, and they grazed in the marsh grass. And lo, seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and gaunt, such as I had never seen for ugliness in all the land of Egypt. And the lean and ugly cows ate up the first seven fat cows. Yet when they had devoured them, it could not be detected that they had devoured them, for they were just as ugly as before. Then I awoke. I saw also in my dream, and behold, seven ears, full and good, came up on a single stalk, and lo, seven ears, withered, thin, and scorched by the east wind, sprouted up after them, and the thin ears swallowed up seven good ears. Then I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Now Joseph said to Pharaoh, Pharaoh's dreams are one and the same. God has told to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, 
and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one and the same. And the seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven thin ears scorched by the east wind shall be seven years of famine. It is as I have spoken to Pharaoh. God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Behold, seven years of great abundance are coming in all the land of Egypt, and after them seven years of famine will come, and all the abundance will be forgotten in the land of Egypt, and the famine will ravage the land. So the abundance will be unknown in the land because of that subsequent famine, for it will be very severe. Now, as for the repeating of the dream to Pharaoh twice, it means that the matter is determined by God, and God will quickly bring it about. And now, let Pharaoh look for a man discerning and wise, and send him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh take action to appoint overseers in charge of the land, and let him exact a fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt in the seven years of abundance. Then let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up the grain for food in the cities under Pharaoh's authority and let them guard it. And let the food become as a reserve for the land for the seven years of famine which will occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish during the famine. Amen. We have here in this chapter, Genesis 41, a transition of Joseph's um, humiliation, his servitude, his imprisonment from the previous chapter to his exaltation. But the means of Joseph's exaltation is Pharaoh's humiliation. Pharaoh has to first be humbled with the realization that he does not have the power, the means, the wisdom, the discernment to guide his nation and the future of his nation. And God reveals that explicitly to Pharaoh by means of these two dreams. Well, Joseph then interprets the dreams and Pharaoh trusts in Joseph's abilities, his wisdom and discernment, and then appoints him to be the ruler of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh. This is what happens in our chapter. Joseph, just like Daniel the prophet, Joseph had his own dreams, such as in chapter 37, and as Daniel does in the book of Daniel, Daniel has his own dreams and visions, and Daniel and Joseph also interpret the visions or dreams of others, such as we have right here in this chapter. And even in the previous chapter, Joseph interpreted the dreams of both the baker and the butler in the previous chapter. And here, now he does so for Pharaoh, these two dreams. A true prophet of God is what we see here in Joseph. We see that this is, in fact, the case based on what we have here. And we'll see more indications of Joseph's abilities as a true prophet revealed in this chapter. So the two dreams, the first dream is, and these two dreams are repeated and summarized. First, they are announced in verses 1 to 8. In verses 1 to 4, we find that these dreams appeared at the end of two full years. Precisely two full years. According to God's plan, Joseph was in the prison for two years, and after two years, these dreams occurred. Which means that 
He had to suffer with the forgetfulness of the baker. He had to suffer because the baker promised, when I get out, I'm going to mention you to Pharaoh to get you out also. But he didn't do it. The sufferings of Joseph, they continue from age 17 to age 30. This chapter, he's 30 years old by the time we reach this chapter. And the end of these two full years. Because in 4146, 4146 in the same chapter, when Pharaoh elevates Joseph, it says in 4146, now Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh king of Egypt. This shows that in this 13-year span, Joseph experienced intense suffering. Intense suffering, but he was faithful to God and God was faithful to him. And in due time, God elevated him and delivered him from his sufferings. This is often what God does for the righteous. He doesn't do it in every single case, but he does it often enough to illustrate for us that it is worthwhile to suffer under affliction that God ordains for us, and in due time, God will alleviate that suffering, as he does with Joseph, as he did with Job, as he did with Jesus. This is the way of God, to show us that we should persevere, have encouragement whenever we are suffering. Don't lose hope. Joseph did not lose hope, and God worked in him. And he did so by... Revealing his word to the greatest authority in the land of Egypt, the Pharaoh, the king. This is how God worked in order to move the heart of the king. Proverbs 21.1 The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. Proverbs 21.1 God turns the heart of the king however he wants. Here, he's revealing his word to this unbelieving pagan king, Pharaoh, and turning his heart in the right direction. And the right direction in this chapter, and even from here until the end of the book of Genesis, what is God doing by influencing these kings? What's he doing by influencing the people who have power? He is protecting his own people, his own church, his little church in the time of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, his own small, tiny little church, he's protecting them, all the while using unbelievers to support the church. He's using unbelievers to support the church. And we should not think that that is uh, an unusual thing that God does. He does this all the time. He's always using unbelievers to support the church. 2 Corinthians 4.15 2 Corinthians 4.15 For all things are for your sakes, that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. All things are for your sakes, including the sufferings. And 2 Corinthians is a letter that amply describes the sufferings of not only the apostle, but of the church. Almost every chapter, every other chapter of 2 Corinthians has a list of sufferings that are meant for the church. And 
He says that these things, even by the hands of wicked men, are for your sakes, that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. For the gospel to spread to more people, and for us, the church, to praise God, to give thanks to God. It's for our benefit and for the glory of God, and for the benefit of those yet to be saved. That's what we find here in this chapter. God working through Pharaoh to benefit the tiny church that existed in the time of Jacob and Joseph in that part of the world. The first dream is of the seven cows, seven plus seven. First, seven fat cows. That's the way they should be. Cows are meant to be fat. That's their nature, and that's how they are slaughtered. That's the way they should be. It's according to the way God has governed nature. Everybody knows that from every nation. They know cows are meant to be fat. And so first the seven fat cows, and then the ugly gaunt ones, the ugly thin ones, because when they are scrawny cows, they are uh, despised. People wonder what's going on. Who's starving the cows? Something is amiss here. Cows should never be thin. They should never be scrawny. Well, that's what we have here. And it's so detestable that they... They swallow up the fat cows and they still remain thin. Now that's an amazing thing. That a scrawny, thin cow swallows the fat, plump cow and still is thin and scrawny and ugly. That alarmed Pharaoh, and it should. It would alarm any of us. It alarmed Pharaoh to see that. He awoke from that dream, verse 4. Verses 2 to 4, the cows. But that wasn't enough. God revealed in verses 5 to 7 another dream of ears of grain. Verse 5, the ears of grain. Well, whenever grain is growing, whenever a tree is growing, whenever we have any kind of fruit or vegetable tree, do we not want it to be abundant? Do we not want it to bear much fruit? That's when it's good. That's when it's handled properly. The farmer has handled it properly. And there has been sufficient water given to the plants, right? In this case, that's what happened to the grain. It happened that way. Seven ears of grain came up on a single stalk, plump and good. That happened. But then... Seven ears, thin and scorched by the east wind. Not plump, but thin now. And scorched by the east wind, sprouted up. Very lifeless, dry ears crop up. And then, it's not only that, but it says in seven, the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump and full ears and likely remained thin. So that would alarm Pharaoh again, and he realizes it was a dream again. In both cases, these are so startling to him, so stunning to him, unusual to him, that he did not forget. He remembered when he awoke. But it was not only that, but it was according to God's plan for him to remember those things so that he could repeat them 
to Joseph and the magicians and for all of them to hear what Pharaoh actually experienced, what troubled him so much. Verse 8. Now it came about in the morning that his spirit was troubled, so he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. And Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was no one who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh being a pagan, an unbeliever, and this is clear evidence of that fact here, that God revealed his word to an unbelieving potentate, Pharaoh. And then he goes to his own magicians and wise men, who would be what? These would be the sorcerers uh, of Egypt. When it says magicians, we're not talking, and wise men, we're not talking about um, white magic and playing tricks with people just to have fun. We're talking about black arts, black magic. We're talking about that which is divination, sorcery, consulting demons and consulting ghosts of the dead, like that. Worshipping the planets, worshipping them as gods. This is what we're talking about. That's what these men did. And Pharaoh consulted them because they were usually the ones to consult for spiritual matters. He went to the wrong source. He's going to the wrong people. He should know that whatever they have advised him in the past has not really come about. His past experiences with them and understanding their behavior, that they are charlatans, that they're just in it because they have a a position before him, a status, a way of access to him, but they don't really know what they're talking about. They're really wrong most of the time, just like weathermen are wrong most of the time, trying to predict the future, even if it's the same day from morning, predicting what's going to happen in the afternoon. The same thing with them. They're not right, and yet people still consult them. He's doing that. And he has to be, in this case, verse 8, when he realizes no one who can interpret them to Pharaoh, he has to be further troubled. He was already troubled. Now he's further troubled. He's at a complete loss to know what to do. Well, the, the cupbearer, verses 9 to 13, the cupbearer informs him, I would make mention of my own offenses. Means either that he actually did commit an offense or he's trying to be modest and say, you had good reason, Pharaoh, to put me in prison, even though there, there was no good reason because he was actually exonerated and then restored to his previous position as cupbearer. And as cupbearer, Pharaoh has to really trust him to take the drink and then sample it first and then give it to Pharaoh, right? So that Pharaoh's not poisoned. He has to be a trustworthy man. So either he did do something that was exaggerated and Pharaoh realized it was nothing major, nothing, no big deal, so he was restored to office, or he didn't really do anything after the investigation and restored to office And if that's the case, the latter is the case, he is speaking in modesty to say that he's about to mention that he was rightfully put in jail, in prison by Pharaoh. So, verse 10, Pharaoh was furious with his servants, and he put me in confinement in the house of the captain of the bodyguard, both me and the chief baker. And then what happens? 
What happens? Each of them had their own dream. In verse 11, each of us dreamed according to the interpretation of his own dream. So then, who interpreted? Verse 12, a Hebrew youth was there, a slave of the captain of the bodyguard. That's Joseph. He was there, and he interpreted our dreams for us. To each one he interpreted according to his own dream, which is true. That's what we read in the previous chapter. It happened just like that. Not only did he interpret as he's saying, he's accurately reporting what happened two years ago. But also, more importantly, verse 13. And it came about that just as he interpreted for us, so it happened. He restored me in my office, but he hanged him. That's what happened. After both of them were released from prison, the baker and the butler, the baker was executed, the butler was not. The butler returned to his office, his position. And two years have passed. And nothing has happened. The butler has found has been found to be faithful, to be honest, at least in his relationship and dealings between himself and the king, Pharaoh. So, this now has become a, a matter of trust. Pharaoh now has seen that the butler is trustworthy, so he is willing to receive some advice from him about this Hebrew youth, Joseph. So because of it, 14, 14 to 24. Verse 14, Pharaoh sent and called for Joseph, and they hurriedly brought him out of the dungeon. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came to Pharaoh. He fetches Joseph hurriedly. He's very anxious, very eager to hear from Joseph because he's been made desperate. Pharaoh has been made desperate, which is often the case, is it not? That unless we are made desperate, whether we are in Christ or not, whenever we are made desperate, only then do we admit that we need help. Only then would we admit and reach out to somebody for help. But if we're not desperate, we don't ask for help. And some people are so staunch in their pride that even when they are very desperate, they never ask for help. They would rather die in misery, suffer in misery with no one around them than to ask for help. But Pharaoh wasn't that perverse. He was perverse, but not as perverse as some men can be. He did ask for help. And notice the help is from a Hebrew youth. This is a foreigner and a youngster. He's 30 years old at this point. So a foreigner and a youngster, he was willing to listen to Joseph. And why is that the case? We know from the previous chapters that Joseph was a godly man. He was a faithful man. He resisted sin in the face of severe temptation and he was a prophet of God. He's not doing wrong here to trust Joseph He's doing right. He doesn't know how right he is. How right he is, not yet. He doesn't know. But he is headed in the right direction. This unbeliever is doing right by consulting Joseph. 
we see also in 14 that Joseph had to shave himself and change his clothes. He probably was unkept for a long time, at least two years. At least two years, he was probably um, growing very long hair, a very long beard, um, unmaintained, ungroomed. His clothes were probably filthy. He probably did not take a bath or not take a bath after a spread of many days. So he had to groom himself, clean himself before he could present himself to Pharaoh, which is also an illustration of how God puts us very low in a very low condition temporarily. He puts us in a very low condition, a stinky, smelly condition, ugly condition before he raises raises us up. Because... In the last half of the chapter, Joseph will be elevated. He'll be elevated with, with kingly raiment. He'll be elevated with the signet ring. He'll be elevated with power. Everybody's going to listen to him. He's going to be elevated. He's going from slave to prince. Right? That's the kind of elevation God is working out. But first, the suffering. R- right? Romans 8, 17 8.17 says, 8.17, If children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Romans 8.17, We do have a final eternal inheritance, and now we are reckoned children of God, but the glory of that eternal inheritance isn't received now. Right now, first, he says, sufferings, then there's glory. Now we suffer, then we have splendor. It's not the reverse. It's not splendor first, suffering second. The wicked, the unbelieving world, have splendor now and suffering later, eternal suffering. But we have suffering first, splendor second, just like Joseph. Then we have 15, verse 15, 41, 15. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, but no one can interpret it. And I have heard it said about you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. That's the truth. And that's his desperation. Verse 16. Then Joseph answered Pharaoh, saying, It is not in me. May God give Pharaoh a favorable answer. It is not in me. Joseph is humble. Joseph knows that the source of his abilities, the source of his wisdom, does not originate in himself. John 3, 27, A man can receive nothing unless it has been granted him from above, from heaven. A man can receive nothing unless it's from above. What do you have that you have not received? 1 Corinthians 4, Seven, Joseph understood this. He was humble. This is the way of humble men. They deflect from receiving glory from men. Further in 16, the NASB actually says, God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Perhaps your translation says it in the same way. It is preferable to take it more as a wish 
as a desire, as a prayer, rather than as an indicative. Take it more in the subjunctive mood rather than in the indicative mood, because unless God told Joseph beforehand that it is a favorable answer, Joseph could not say this with confidence unless he's saying it in faith. Perhaps he's saying it in faith. But he didn't do that in chapter 40. He didn't do that in chapter 40 with the other two dreams of the baker and butler. He didn't do that. Here, likely he's not doing it either. He's just wishing for Pharaoh to have a favorable answer, which it ends up being favorable to Pharaoh. Favorable in the end. Not during the seven years of famine, but overall and in the end, it is favorable to Pharaoh. And uh, the grammar of the original language does permit the wish or the subjunctive, may, uh, may God give, I would that God give, something of that uh, translation, a favorable answer. Because we do desire for God to bless people and even to bless unbelievers in the hopes that they repent and believe in the gospel. 17 to 21, verses 17 to 21, Pharaoh repeats the dream, the first dream of the cows, the two sets of cows. And he repeats them accurately according to the way Moses described them earlier in the chapter. As Moses described, so Pharaoh accurately describes. And when we come to verse 21, explicitly we have this statement. Yet when they had devoured them, it could not be detected that they had devoured them. For they were just as ugly as before. That is the appalling part, that they were just as ugly as before. And further, 22 to 24. 22 to 24, he repeats the dream of the ears of grain. And verse 24 then I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Now to Joseph, the pressure is on Joseph. And also, Pharaoh is making a distinction, or is about to make a distinction, between Joseph and Pharaoh, in, or the magicians, in that the magicians are hopeless and helpless, but Joseph is not. The magicians, the gods that they worship are, are feckless and feeble. But Joseph's God is full of fortitude. It's the opposite. And he's setting it up this way. Pharaoh is, according to the secret will of God, setting it up this way. A contest between the righteous and the wicked, the God of Joseph and the gods of the magicians. That's what's happening here displayed right before Pharaoh's eyes and even coming out of Pharaoh's own mouth. At least most of it's coming out of his own mouth. And we'll see in 37 to 39, he's going to actually say of Joseph, I know the Spirit of God's in you, and God informed you. So Pharaoh will say it explicitly at that point. Verse 38, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? So Pharaoh said to Joseph, verse 39, Since God has informed you of all this, there is no one so discerning and wise as you are. 
That's the contrast. Now, 25 to 36, the interpretation. The interpretation, 25 to 36. Now, Joseph said to Pharaoh, Pharaoh's dreams are one and the same. God has told to Pharaoh what he is about to do. He says this again in 28. It is as I have spoken to Pharaoh. God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. And in 32, 32. Now, as for the repeating of the dream to Pharaoh twice, it means that the matter is determined by God and God will quickly bring it about. God has clearly shown to Pharaoh what God is about to do. The reason that it was repeated, there were two dreams, to show Pharaoh that it's actually coming from God, determined by God, and that it's going to happen quickly. It's going to happen soon enough. First, seven years of plenty, seven years of abundance, and then seven years of famine. The interpretation comes in 29 to 31. 29 to 31. Behold, seven years of great abundance are coming in all the land of Egypt, and after them seven years of famine will come, and all the abundance will be forgotten in the land of Egypt, and the famine will ravage the land. So the abundance will be unknown in the land because of that subsequent famine, for it will be very severe. During the seven years of abundance, they're going to have so much. They're going to have so much that unless they follow the orders and recommendations of Joseph, the people, and even Pharaoh, would be skeptical of Joseph's predictions. Yep. Right? Seven years of abundance and then seven years of famine. But they should see that at least during the seven years of abundance, he, that he's right, he's right so far. That should help them see that the famine is going to come and that they should not be gloating. They shouldn't be gloating during the years of abundance, exploiting it and with, with drunkenness and gluttony and all, and not being frugal and disciplined with their possessions, their money and their produce, to prepare for the seven years of famine. They should have that kind of restraint. And they should see that God actually is unfolding his will before our very eyes through his prophet, Joseph. We'll also notice that in 33, now 33 to 36, we have a prescription to prepare for the impending famine. 33 to 36. And now let Pharaoh look for a man discerning and wise and set him over the land of Egypt. Joseph may or may not be implying himself. If he's implying himself, he's being quite modest about it. He is telling Pharaoh what Pharaoh really needs, a discerning and wise man. All of your magicians are worthless. All of your wise men are worthless. You yourself were so helpless and hopeless that you came to me. So you need to find one. And likely he's thinking Pharaoh would understand Joseph is the one he should choose. But he's not openly, explicitly saying, choose me, 
to be your governor. He's not saying that. And Joseph and others have spoken in roundabout ways in terms of modesty before. Um, for example, one example we find is 1 Samuel 25, 1 Samuel 25, 30 to 31. 1 Samuel 25, 30 to 31. In the days of David, David and his men, they needed some help. They needed some food and sustenance from Nabal. They had protected Nabal, his property and possessions, his people, whenever David and his fighting men were fleeing from Saul. They, they protected Nabal. Now, when David was in need, he goes to Nabal with the request. Nabal doesn't oblige to the request. In fact, he humiliates the messengers of David. And then Abigail hears about this, and she intercedes to prevent David and his men from committing genocide against Nabal and all of his people. So Abigail intercedes and stops David, and David commends her for doing so. But in her intercession to plead for her own life and the life of the other innocent people who did not conspire with Nabal to do this, she says this in verse 30. 1 Samuel 25, 30. And it shall come about when the Lord shall do for my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and shall appoint you ruler over Israel that this will not cause grief or a troubled heart to my Lord both by having shed blood without cause and by my Lord having avenged himself. When the Lord shall deal well with my Lord, then remember your maidservant. She summarizes here that God's word will be fulfilled. And meantime, you shouldn't have grief or a troubled heart by shedding innocent blood. But also... When the Lord shall deal well with my Lord, then remember your maidservant. She refers to herself as your maidservant, which is a general way of saying, I am submissive to you. I understand your authority. I understand God's anointing of you. So I am your maidservant. But also she calls him my Lord, which is a respectful way of referring to him. And after... That happens, he does elevate her. In fact, he marries her later in the chapter because Nabal is put to death by God. Right. And Joseph is doing the same here in Genesis 41, 33. He is intimating, but he's not being brash about his request. In fact, Pharaoh acknowledges that this discerning and wise man is Joseph in verse 39. So Pharaoh said to Joseph in 39, So God has informed you of all this. There is no one so discerning and wise as you are. No one as discerning and wise as you are. In his wisdom and discernment, what does he recommend? 34 to 36, Joseph recommends the following. Let Pharaoh take action to appoint overseers in charge of the land. 
and let him exact a fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt in the seven years of abundance. Let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up the grain for food in the cities under Pharaoh's authority and let them guard it. And let the food become as a reserve for the land for the seven years of famine which will occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish during the famine. There are several pieces of advice here. All under the authority of Pharaoh, appoint overseers, exact a fifth of the produce during the years of abundance, store them up in the cities under Pharaoh's authority. So put them there under Pharaoh's authority in various cities, not just one location, perhaps locally, wherever the the farmland is and granaries near, and then let them guard it. There must be guards because people are apt to steal. And that's five. And then number six in verse 36. Let the food become as a reserve for the land for the seven years of famine. And the goal is so that the land may not perish during the famine. Pharaoh, do you want all your people to die? No. You want all your people to leave Egypt and go elsewhere? And then you will be depopulated like that? No. Because... Uh, it is foolish for a king to have a dearth of people, as it says in Proverbs. But when there is an abundance of people, that's where there is glory in a kingdom. But when there's very few, there's no glory to that. And Pharaoh understands that point. He, even as an unbeliever, he understands that point, that that is right. This is the advice Joseph gives. In this... Regard, we notice that Joseph is a planner. He's a planner, investor. He uses resources in the time of abundance properly, wisely, to plan and save for a time of famine, for a time of need. And we should be the same. In fact, how can it be that ants are stronger than men? or wiser than men. Why are ants wiser than men? Yes, ants. Proverbs 6.6. 6. Proverbs 6.6. 6. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Observe her ways and be wise, which having no chief officer or ruler, prepares her food in the summer and gathers her provision in the harvest. Why do they do so? In the summer and harvest. Why do ants gather food in the, that time of year? They can't do it. Because they can't do it in the winter. And they go underground where they have kept their food stored up for the winter. Proverbs chapter 30. Proverbs 30, 24. 30, 24 to 28. Other animals, ants and other animals, also have wisdom. 30, 24. Four things are small on the earth, but they are exceedingly wise. The ants are not a strong folk, but they prepare their food in the summer. The badgers are not mighty folk, yet they make their houses in the rocks. The locusts have no king, yet all of them go out in ranks. The lizard you may grasp with the hands, 
yet it is in king's palaces. Well, if the creatures of the world can have wisdom, we should have more wisdom because we are made in the image of God, especially if we're Christians because we are sanctified by the blood of Christ and the spirit of Christ who dwells in us and we have the word of Christ to consult. We should be wise and be planners, wise planners. Not anxious, right. not anxious, Matthew 6, Matthew 6, uh, 19 to 34, teaches us not to be anxious about the future, but we should be purposeful, diligent, hardworking planners for the future. There's a difference between planning and being anxious. And one more, we, one more thing we learn from this, um, this passage in the earlier, earlier part of the passage. I made mention of the fact that Pharaoh consulted the magicians and he went to the wrong source. Often, this is what people do. They go to the wrong source, particularly at verse 8, 41 and verse 8. And 41, verse 24, where he mentions the magicians. 41, 8 and 41, 24. We too must not go to the wrong source. Amen. We cannot and should not go to the wrong source for wisdom. Isaiah 8, 19 to 22. Isaiah 8, 19 to 22. And when they say to you, consult the mediums and the spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people consult their God? Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. And they will pass through the land hard-pressed and famished. And it will turn out that when they are hungry, they will be enraged and curse their king and their God as they face upward. Then they will look to the earth and behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be driven away into darkness. They cons uh, consult these occultic, false, dubious sources, mediums, spiritists, but they should consult God. And consult him by his word, verse 20 says. Right. His word, not the fake, false people who consult idols and spirits. And when they do pursue them, what happens? They'll be hard-pressed, famished, hungry, enraged, curse God and their king. They will be full of distress and darkness the gloom of anguish, and driven away into darkness. Right. Who wants that? They don't think they're going to get that, but that's the reality. That's what they will receive. The same is true in 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. In 2 Timothy 4, 1 to 8, we'll read especially 1 to 5. The apostle explains that this is the tendency of people to do so, to go to the wrong sources, wrong resources. 2 Timothy 4.1, I solemnly charge you 
in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires, and will turn away their ears from the truth, and will turn aside to myths. But you, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. And in 68, the reward of being faithful to this ministry. The, the charge in verses 1 to 2, a solemn charge in verses 1 and 2, before God and Christ, is to preach the Word, the Word of Christ, the Bible. Right. Preach the Bible without compromise. And also note that in 3 to 4, that there will be people who won't want to hear what you preach. And they will turn away their ears from the truth and turn aside to myths. Turn away from the truth and turn aside to myths. They want people to give them soothing words. That's why even the magicians are called soothsayers. Because they have soothing words, pleasant words, sugary words to speak to their hearers. Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Everything will go well with you. It's all taken care of. God loves you. He'll take care of you. His love is unconditional. Come just as you are. That's what they say. But that's all false hope, false assurance, false love, false grace. All false and very malicious because it's devilish. It's a lie. And all lies come from the devil. John 8, 44. Let's not do the same. Instead, let's go to the right source. Let's go to the prophets and the apostles in the written word of God. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.